that the amount of information that is collected is so large that individual scientists don't have the ability to assimilate all that information. And so what happens is that scientists become specialized. Most scientists will be just focusing on one particular area. And great discoveries will make, be made in those focus areas. But what's often missing is the big picture, is a scientist who has the outstanding ability to take multiple areas and bring them together. And, and that's what brings me to, to Robert, as being, such a, as being such a scientist, because I was just reading, reading about him. There was lots of articles about him on the internet. And, and one of them said how, who he collaborates with. So he collaborates with linguists, computer scientists, physicists, mathematicists, economics, scientists, archaeologists, anthropologists, and literary scholars. And there are just very, very few scientists who are able to do that. And this is what makes Robin, I think, really quite unique in his ability to take disparate areas and synthesize them. And that's how he's come up with his ideas to understand the evolution of the brain and how that places humans and primates into a social network. So Robin started off his career at Oxford University and uh, basically ended up back at Oxford University as uh, director of the uh, Cognitive uh, Institute of, of Cognitive and Evolutionary Anthropology. And over that time, he's collected numerous accolades. I think one of the most recent was uh, the Huxley Memorial Medal. But I won't bore you with uh, a long list of those accolades, but I'll hand you over to Professor Dunbar. Thank you very much. <coughs> so I'm, I'm going to really talk about uh, the world that's really actually very familiar to you because you live in it, that's say your everyday social world. Um, and, and let me sort of frame my talk really by putting it in the context of uh, the internet and Facebook in particular. Uh, Facebook in particular when it came on stream made this kind of promise, if you like, uh, that this new technology is going to open up whole new social vistas for you. Uh, you are going to have, be able to have friends all around the world, in many thousands of them. But they gave, allowed you to have, as you probably well know, up to 5,000 friends listed on your Facebook page. The question is, has that promissory note that was on the tin can actually turned out to be true? And I'm going to try and persuade you the answer is very firmly no. And to try and explain to you why that is the case, why it's simply not the case that uh, you can have an unlimited social network uh, thanks to this extraordinary technology. And it is extraordinary. I mean, you think uh, how different the world is now from what it was 20, 50 years ago, 50 years ago nearly, when I was an undergraduate and you wrote everything in with pens on paper and the internet wasn't even thought about. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> just, just to give you a, a sense of 
the scale of real social networks on the internet. This is a um, series of national uh, uh, surveys that we did um, a couple of years ago, just asking people how many friends they had on Facebook. Um, so this is a, a stratified national survey across the whole of Great Britain, uh, balanced for regional population distributions for age distributions and so on. It's adults only, 18, 18 upwards. Um, how many friends do you have? On? And they, they were simply uh, given these, roughly these choices. So it's, it's sort of uh, a, a log scale, if you like. Things, the in intervals become longer and longer and you decide. I just point out the frequency with which uh, this number 150 turns up here is much greater than anything else. The mean is, is very, very close to that. And in case you don't believe me, this is real Facebook data. This is the number of friends on a million Facebook pages. Um, here's the limit at 5,000 down here. Most they'll allow you to have. There's a tiny little yellow blip there. There are a few people who actually do have 5,000 friends on Facebook. They are mostly professional users. Um, aspiring singer-songwriters using Facebook as a, a free uh, fan club base, as it were, and, and a few journalists using it for basically informational. A number of products, I believe Cadbury's has some Facebook pages for some of its more obscure products. So, you know, if you're very short of friends, you can sign up and be a friend of a marathon bar or something like that. For the rest of us, we're all packed down here very tightly packed, the, the mode is somewhere around 150 to 250, which is about right for the age group that is going to, is the, are the main Facebook users, so under 30s tend to be, uh, have somewhere around 200, 250 friends, typically even in the real world. Um, but you can see that, you know, there are a few people down here, even if it's a tiny proportion, that have a thousand friends listed on Facebook. Uh, Enough, even though that's a minuscule proportion of the total population, uh, it's enough given that there are, whatever it is, a billion uh, people signed up to Facebook for s everybody to know somebody who knows somebody who has a thousand friends on Facebook. The rest of us, though, are sitting around here somewhere around 150 to 200 people. So the question is, why is that the case? The technology allows you to have many more friends on Facebook. Part of the answer is almost certainly at the moment uh, that uh, the stuff is still digitally based and that makes it very clunky. Um, this is a study we did uh, some years ago where we asked people at the end of every day to say how much they had kind of enjoyed interactions with their, I think it was eight best friends um, on a very simple, typical psychology happiness scale, one to whatever it is, uh, usually one to 10. Uh, so they rated every, in, every single interaction they'd had that day over a period of several weeks. And uh, according to how uh, the mode of, of communication, so it was face-to-face -face by Skype, by phone, instant messaging, texting, uh, and email and social networking sites uh, put in together. And the, the key message really here is how much better face-to-face um, -face does than any of these digital uh, technologies, including the phone. 
with the sole exception of Skype, I was amazed how well Skype came out of it. And I think that illustrates really the whole reason that face-to-face -face interactions are in a different league. And that is Skype, as clunky as it is, gives you this sense of being in the same room as that person. So you can see the smile breaking on their face before you finish the joke. And that speed of interaction then becomes very uh, important in creating this sense of uh, contentedness and satisfaction that we have with, with normal face-to-face -face interactions. Um, there is, uh, in, in addition, another reason probably, and that is the role of laughter. So we, we also had them specify whether there was laughter involved in, the, in, in that particular interaction, either as, as real laughter here for these three or as sort of emoticons uh, in, in the digital ones. But, and, and although when laughter occurs, it's kind of uh, uh, equally good in, in, in all uh, m media of, of communication. It's clear that in face-to-face -face interactions where you can actually see the whites of the eyes, um, there's something kind of special about it that, that really makes those interactions uh, important for us. And I'll, we'll come back to laughter at the end. But if we go back really to the beginning of this story, beginning of this story is what's known as the social brain hypothesis. It's an explanation for why monkeys and apes have much bigger brains, uh, however you look at them, absolutely or relative to body size than any other group of animals. And the conventional uh, argument for that was known as the social brain hypothesis, was actually originally proposed down the road a, a wee bit at St. Andrews uh, um, in the late 80s, that basically monkeys and apes live in much more complex social systems than other uh, species of animals. They're much more dynamic. Uh, they're much more complicated cognitively, and therefore they need a big computer. And this was sort of the, um, I guess, iconic evidence, really, that was produced to support it, which was uh, simply a measure of social group size in primates as a very simple measure of, of social complexity plotted against some measure of brain size. Originally, we did it against neocortex ratio. Um, uh, it's the ratio of the neocortex to the rest of the brain. The neocortex being the bit that has exploded out of all proportion in the course of primate evolution. Um, uh, but it turns out that you can pretty much put any measure of brain size you like in there. Uh, the more it, it focuses on the neocortex, the cleaner the results and the more frontal it gets. If you take out the visual system in the, at the back, it, you get much cleaner results and so on. But the two key things that emerge out of that is a generic relationship between social group size and essentially brain size. The bigger the group you live in, the bigger the computer you need to manage that. And the fact that it turns out is that there are very, these very tight grades within that generic relationship with kind of, uh, if you like, stupid monkeys here and smart monkeys here and apes lying over here, such that as you go across those three, essentially um, a stupid monkey living in a group of five only requires so much brain power to cope with that. But the smart monkeys living in groups of five need much more, and apes progressively then need even more. And we are apes, so we can plug ourselves in here. We, we have 80%, this is essentially a reflection of what proportion of your total brain uh, volume is, is neocortex. Our neocortex takes up 80% of our total brain volume, so it's a, a, a ratio of four. Uh, if you plug us in there, you get this 
uh, a mystical figure of 150 that's now known as Dunbar's number, christened on Facebook, I believe, <laughs> or so, so I was told. Um, anyway, the, 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 it's a very clear prediction that a natural group sizes for humans is round about 150, give or take the error variance round uh, um, any prediction. The question is, do we actually live in, in groups of that size? The answer turns out to be yes. And once you realize what you're looking for, that figure keeps turning up all over the place. Um, these are just a sort of random collection of casual examples that, that, that um, have, have appeared. Um, I like these three in particular. Uh, these two because they couldn't possibly have known what the theory was. So the data are, 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 are quite hard and fast. This is the average village size in the Doomsday Book um, when William the Conqueror um, uh, marched in and took over England and Wales. Eventually got, thought he'd better find out what he'd just got hold of. Um, uh, they did this extraordinarily detailed census. They didn't actually count people because they weren't interested in people, but they did count every single cow, pig, plow, house, path, field, and what have you. And the historians have long since worked out what the average village sizes are simply from the number of houses and then figuring out how many people are likely to be in each house. Turns out that county after county after county, the average is, is 150. And incidentally, one of the odd things uh, they've just discovered quite recently is that when William the Conqueror divided England and Wales up uh, between his henchmen that he brought over with him, he actually divided it among 150 barons. And they've just only just discovered since they digitized the Doomsday Book that when the barons themselves also divided their ill-gotten gains amongst their uh, main supporters, they on average also divided it up among 150 people. So they have this kind of layered structure going on in William the Conqueror's army. Eight centuries later, the average village size is still approximately 150 in, in England. Uh, this is from parish register data, so it's really very secure, reconstructing parish sizes. And this one I really like because this is the structure of Gore-Tex, uh, the Gore-Tex company. We're all wearing Gore-Tex. Space suits that landed on the moon had Gore-Tex in them. Incredibly successful material made by a very, one of the, the most successful medium-sized businesses. They have a very unique structure uh, uh, for a large company of their size. Instead of being hierarchically structured, they have a, what they call a flat lattice structure. Is they have a whole series of factories which are semi-independent. No factory has, ever has more than 200 people in it. The, the, uh, what they try and aim at is 150 people, and everything is completely self-contained. They have their own sales people, their own accountants, their own bosses, their own sandwich makers, and so on. But because of the size of the unit, they don't need formal titles, and the, uh, the label they have on their jackets just says Gore-Tex Associate, but everybody knows who everybody is, and that's generally thought to be one of the key to the success of this company. It really has been hugely, hugely successful. I deeply regret, regret that Willard Gore, when he set up Gore-Tex, didn't come and ask me first. Um, because if he had, believe me, we would be having this lecture on my private yacht in the Caribbean, and you'd all be there at my expense <laughs> on the royalties. <laughs> Unfortunately, he discovered this long before me. Anyway, 
So these are just casual examples, if you like, which are kind of amusing in many ways. Um, these, these are two sets of, of data. One, uh, I, yes, one is the generic set of, of hunter-gatherer census data. So hunter-gatherers, like all humans, live in multi-level societies. Each of these colored dots represents a level of society or the size of a level of society in a particular society. So they'll have, most of them will have three or four of those levels identified by the ethnographers. And the interesting thing is this block in here, uh, the red dots, which sit very nicely centered around that predicted value of 150 and within the 95% confidence limits around that prediction, which are the blue lines there. This is sometimes known as a clan or a local community in the hunter-gatherer literature. These are overnight camps. This is an ecological unit. Uh, these are usually known as megabands, and these are tribes, the tribe being a linguistic unit, it's all the people who speak the same language. And you can see how nicely uh, this 150 sits around uh, that particular figure. And these are just, this is our first attempt to really test out in real people. So this is looking at the world top down, how people are distributed in space. This is looking at the world bottom up from your individual perspective. How many friends do you have? And we first tried doing it uh, by asking people simply to list out everybody whom they had sent a Christmas card to, all the recipients of Christmas cards, the people in the household. And there's a, a wide range of variation. Uh, goes from people with about uh, uh, 300 up here down to me, Mr. No Mates, with zero uh, cards sent. Um, but you've got this nice peak, almost exactly at uh, 150 here. Um, and there's very interesting variants around that, and, and that's quite interesting itself. We'll come back to that. But here is my really best example of this. So this is a girl, a Dutch girl in Amsterdam, who had the faces of her friends tattooed on her right arm. And I put it to you, here's evidence, if you want evidence, for the theory of evolution by natural selection, because it turns out that the human right arm is just long enough to take 150 <laughs> such photographs. Well, fortunately, fortunately, this is actually a hoax. You can see this being done ostensibly on YouTube. Uh, fortunately, it's a hoax. It was actually an advertising stunt by an, uh, an Amsterdam tattoo artist uh, who thought of using this, this idea of 150 friends. These are actually um, uh, transfers, fortunately. Very fortunately for the girl, because uh, the turnover on friends is sufficiently high that in four or five years' time, probably about a third of these people would not be her friends. So you really don't want to be waking up Monday morning staring at your least friendly person. Um, <laughs> but it is a tribute, if I, I might say, to the quality of Dutch education that even tattoo artists have read the scientific literature in Holland, and that's saying something. All right. Just a reminder, really, of how important your social networks are to you. So this is among many. I think one of the surprises that have emerged out of the epidemiological and sociological woodwork in the last 10 years, 15 years, not a lot more than that, is constant barrage of evidence on the fact that the size and quality of your friendship circle is the most important factor affecting your health. So this is just one of those studies. It's a meta-analysis of 148 epidemiological studies of heart attack patients. So they're following heart attack patients over the first year after the heart attack to try and figure out what best predicts survival for a year. 
And the size of the bar here uh, is the relative effect size of different things. And here we have network, social network. Uh, and it has a bigger effect on your probability of surviving a heart attack than anything else except giving up smoking. Basically, you'll be glad to know you can slob about as much as you like, you can drink as much as you like, you can be as fat as you like, you can be on whatever drug regimes they may or may not wish to give you down the road in the hospital, and it really makes no difference. The best thing you can do is go out and make friends. So your friendship circles are probably the most important effect on your health, your happiness, and indeed your survival. Okay, so there you are with your 150 friends, give or take a bit. Uh, some have fewer. The range of variation is probably, natural range of variation is probably somewhere between 100 and 250. Um, <clears throat> your friendship circle does not look like this as a homogenous whole. It looks much more like this. It's all rather clumpy. And if you do a lot of grinding analysis of very large data sets, this is the picture that emerges. Here you are sitting in the center of a series of circles of friendship, if you like. Um, uh, and these circles contain uh, increasing numbers of people as you go out. These, these numbers are inclusive, by the way. So the 15 here will include the five inside of it. But the point, key point here is these, these numbers have a very specific ratio to each other. Each layer is three times the size of the layer inside it. And we know from our data, these are, these are actually, uh, these figures are actually based on um, people filling in questionnaires on, on uh, uh, what their social networks are and, and who they, how long they know them and so on. Uh, and we know that ultimately they go out to about 1,500. So here at 150, this is your key social network uh, of, the, of meaningful relationships that you have. And then outside that, there's a layer that goes out to 500 of acquaintances. And then beyond that, a layer that goes out to about 1,500, which is the num roughly equivalent to the number of faces you can put names to. So these are, in here, these relationships are much more one way. Whereas within the red line, all these relationships are two way. They have history. They're relationships of obligation and, and, and reciprocity and so on. Indeed, not only does the emotional quality of the relationships decline as you go out, but so does the willingness to behave altruistically towards, towards you or towards a member of a particular circle on your part. And so, in turn, also does the frequency of interaction. So this, just to illustrate the scale, is the frequency of contact per day, per individual in each of these circles. So here are the circles, the 5, 15, 50, 150, 500. And you can see that most of your social effort is devoted to these five people here. In fact, it turns out that 40% of your total social capital, whether you measure that by ratings of emotional closeness or by frequencies of contact, are devoted to just these five people. A further 20% are devoted to the 10 people that make up the extra in the 15 circles. So these two circles, 15 people, get 60% of your social focus, and the rest of it is divided among uh, these further layers in increasingly small, as you can see, increasingly small quantities. Um, <clears throat> just to show you, these layers really do exist in, in very, very large samples. Um, these are our notional numbers. 
uh, from the face-to-face -face data, as it were, that I've just showed you. But we've looked at this in very large data sets. Facebook, uh, 90,000 uh, people sampled in, in a Facebook data set. There's a Twitter data set of over 200,000 uh, Twitterati, that's say the followers. So this is done on the basis of the followers talking to each other within Twitter accounts. So it's all done on, on named posts, who's posting comments to who. And, and most recently, we've done it on this huge national uh, telephone uh, database from a, an obscure European country, which isn't here, um, just to allay your fears. Um, and that's on 6 million viewers. It's something like, sorry, 6 million subscribers. It's something like 20% of the entire national uh, population of, of the country concerned. So it's a huge, huge sample. And again, in all these, we're looking at who's, who's uh, uh, posting regularly, reciprocating posts to who. And here are the numbers you get out. Um, and you can see here are these layers. They're, they're really quite quite close, uh, except in these two. This is an old Facebook data set, actually. It's a 2009 Facebook data set, so um, you wouldn't expect uh, people to have their entire social world on there. But I have to say, I used to joke uh, when I showed this graph and say, well, if you think about it, there's a layer missing in here, right? If you scale backwards, there should be a layer at 1.5, right? And why is it 1.5? Well, it's obvious. Right? Because half of them are blokes and half of them are girls. And girls live in a much bigger, richer social world, so they can manage two friends simultaneously, a boyfriend and a best girlfriend. Technical term now exists for that, apparently. Christened on Facebook again, a best friend forever, or a BFF. And boys, being less social, can only manage one. It's either a girlfriend or a mate you go drinking with, but not the two together. And therefore, the average is going to be one and a half. Well, blow me down. Here it, here it is. <laughs> we couldn't believe it. It turns out not to be a sex difference, which spoiled the joke. <laughs> there are some of us that are just more social than others. But there it is. It's quite extraordinary. It's in exactly the right place. Just a reminder that your social network of 150 actually consists of two net separate networks interdigitated. One is indeed your friends, but the other is family. And about 50, in, all, in, in small scale traditional societies, the whole 150 would be family. It's the whole community you live in. Um, uh, and they would all be related to you. With our reduced family sizes in the modern world, we end up with a lot of slots, which we go around filling up with people we call friends who are unrelated to us. And, and in our samples, certainly uh, uh, um, from Britain and from Belgium, with, which are our two big social network samples, almost exactly 50% of family and 50% of friends. What's interesting is that we can show from these data that people who come from big extended families have fewer friends. So this 150 limit is a real limit. And what seems to happen is because we give preference to family, we slot them in first, and then when, whatever we've got left over, lots of people, if you come from a small family, not many uh, slots if you come from a big family. We fill up, go out and fill up with friends. These two have very, very different dynamics, though. This, this is uh, a data from a, a, an 18-month longitudinal study we did. Um, we actually did it on uh, uh, high, uh, sex formers um, go, uh, go in anticipation that they were going away to university somewhere else. So we gave a whole bunch of sixth formers in the same year, the same school, 
um, free mobile phone subscriptions for 18 months in exchange for being able to download their itemized bills and uh, in addition, them completing questionnaires every nine months, beginning, middle and end on who all the people in their networks were and rating them for things like emotional closeness, a very simple measure of em emotional closeness on a one to 10 scale, which works extremely well. And here plotted, the average emotional closeness to all extended family members, so it's not just mum and dad, this is second cousins twice removed and all, uh, at the beginning, middle and the end of the study, they're going away to university here, almost all of them to somewhere else other than the town they grew up in, so they're meeting new people. And kind of emotional closeness to, to family is pretty much flatlining. You might hopefully uh, or look at it hopefully and say it's actually going up a bit and maybe that's a reflection of the fact that absence makes the heart go stronger, fonder. Uh, that, uh, but I draw your attention to the fact that that is only in respect of kin because look what happens to friends. So this is emotional closest to the original set of friends at the start of the study after they've moved away and, and met other people and so on. And also because they're moving away they can't see them so often. It just plummets. And it plummets very, very fast. Within about six months, there is already a detectable change in the decline in emotional closeness uh, to a friend, not to family. So the question is, how do we create these friendships? Because we're primates, we uh, follow the primate model, as it were, the way, way primates do it. In primates, it's a two-process mechanism that involves a pharmacological effect uh, a very emotionally, very intense effect based around grooming. And the key to grooming is the stroking of the fur that goes on as they part the fur to, to look in it uh, for bits and pieces to remove. Uh, and then secondarily, a cognitive component, which is where the social brain bit comes in. So what's actually happening here is the grooming is setting up a psychopharmacological platform off which this cognitive component in which they're then developing relationships of trust and obligation and reciprocity is being allowed to develop. And I'm going to talk you through both of these uh, um, briefly. First, the cognitive bit uh, is actually paradoxically the one we know least about. Um, it's clear that it has something to do with this stuff called social cognition, and social cognition is best reflected in what's known as theory of mind, and, and this is essentially theory of mind. Um, it's the ability to understand other individuals' mind states. And it, it has a natural hierarchical uh, recursive uh, um, uh, structure to it. So Jack here is in first order intentionality. He believes that something is the case. He knows his own mind. And most animals that are conscious, uh, that's the state they live in. Uh, Jill here now is in so-called second order intentionality. She knows that Jack knows that something is the case. This is formally theory of mind, as it's called in the developmental psychology literature, and it's what children acquire at the age of five. And then they then add capacities uh, recursively up into teenage years um, where they can handle more and more mind states. So Jack now is in third order intentionality. He believes that uh, Jill supposes that he thinks that something's the case. The upper limit on that turns out to be fifth order in normal adults. Um, here's one of uh, 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 many studies of this 
uh, trying to look at, at what the limit, natural limits are. It's, it's asking uh, you, people to read little stories, little vignettes about people interacting or trying to interact and, uh, uh, and then asking who is thinking what about whom. Um, <clears throat> we, uh, in general, have tried to run well past what's turned out to be the limit at fifth order, but I have considerable doubts about really the structure of questions, anything well, above seventh order, certainly eighth and ninth order. I mean, I wrote these questions and stories in the very first set, and I can tell you that I only managed to write eighth and ninth order intentionality questions very late at night after several bottles of malt whiskey. It's not possible. <laughs> so I have slight doubts about the meaningfulness of it. It's so complicated, you know, it's impossible to understand. But the key here is you get this nice peak at fifth order. This is the performance, maximum performance level, really, for most people. The tails are pretty likely to be arbitrary, really. Um, but what's important is, nonetheless, there's quite a lot of variation in the middle. And this prompted us to take this one step further and ask, well, if there's this variation, how does that relate to the size of your friendship circle? So this is really the size of the inner core of friends you have plotted against your performance on these kind of mentalizing tasks. And there's a lot of mess in the data, but there's very significant relationships. And we've repeated this endlessly, so it's a very, very robust effect. But this sort of then prompted us to think, well, how does this relate to the hardware? Because essentially you've got a behavioral outcome here underpinned by some software, essentially cognition. Uh, and somewhere in the background behind this is some hardware in the form of a computer that's uh, driving the, the, the cognition. So we threw a lot of people into... Uh, neuroimaging machines, or not just us, a number of other people have done this as well. Uh, people have used different measures of uh, social network size, ranging from they, for example, use number of friends on Facebook. We tend to use the number of friends in the, in the second layer uh, of relationships. Um, and what emerges out of that is a very nice significant relationship between the number of friends you've got, however you measure it, and the size of the so-called mentalizing circuit, which involves the prefrontal cortex up here and uh, the um, uh, temporal lobe and temporal parietal junction in particular, um, <clears throat> which is keeps coming up uh, in neuroimaging studies of theory of mind. So this is, this is where activity is going on um, when you're doing theory of mind type tasks. So these are parametric effects um, uh, the, the, the higher the level you're working at, the more, str the stronger the, the, the activity is in these particular areas. And it's this area up here in the um, edge of the orbital frontal cortex, which seems to be particularly critical. And this again turns up in, in, in this is a gross anatomical study we did, uh, which is just measuring the volu volumes of, uh, uh, the, the various parts of the prefrontal cortex here. And again, it's this or, uh, orbital frontal cortex up here that emerges as being very strongly correlated with the number of friends you have, whereas the, the more dorsal end of the prefrontal cortex isn't at all. And this similar results have now turned up in macaques. So here you have the social brain at work at the level of the individual, not just 
between species. So that's so much for the cognition. The question is, what about the other component that's grooming? Uh, the key to it is that it's very time costly, extremely time costly. It involves lots of time spent grooming or cuddling or uh, stroking and so on yeah, in the case of humans. And just to show you, or really remind you, because I'm sure you know this already, how important, how time costly romantic relationships in particular are. Um, one of the studies we did uh, was uh, asking people simply to list out all the people who would fall into that inner core of five. So you can define that in various ways and define all the layers either by a time component or an emotional category component or by a particular type of relationship. And, and, and the relationship that categorizes this five, five layer uh, is all the people you would go to for emotional and social and financial and other support in times of great crisis. And consistently people filling that question in will list about five people. There's a range of variation. Uh, most people will be somewhere between about three and, and, and seven, probably but five would, is very, very striking average. Well, by chance, um, the postdoc who did this study threw in a question uh, which said, are you in a romantic, active romantic relationship at the moment? And lo and behold, when we looked at the data separated, it turned out that people who are in active romantic relationship only have four uh, close friends in that, in that layer on average. And thinking about it, what this implied to us is that actually romantic relationships cost you two friends. That's how costly they are. So think about it. Here you are, you're starting off with your five uh, sympathy group friends, support group friends. Uh, you meet this person. You don't normally uh, fall in love with somebody who's already in your uh, inner circle of five, not least because, of course, two of those are probably your mum and dad or a brother and sister, and it's not common even in Aberdeen, to fall in love with your mum and dad. <laughs> Normally, if you do, they come in from way outside your solar circle, as it were. You bring them into the centre to get to know them better. Devote a lot of time. It means you've got six people now in here. It's getting very crowded. And so what you seem to do is drop two in order to make time for this huge focus that you have on this one person. And the interesting question is, well, who do you drop? Bearing in mind that two of those people in the original five are going to be close family, two are going to be very close friends, your best friends, and one or other uh, of the two to make up the, the five. You know, you could drop um, <clears throat> uh, your, your two friends, but they're, you know, the shoulders to cry on. And, you know, uh, they, you, you really need them and you will need them. Because the alternative, you know, with, with if you drop your friends, if you go back uh, however long later uh, in tears to, to the remnants of your um, uh, social circle, all of whom are family members, your mum and dad, and say, he's abandoned me, deserted me, you know what response you get from them. It's, well, there's plenty of fish in the sea, and um, we never liked him anyway, did we? Right, so that's absolutely useless. You need a, a, a shoulder to cry on, and it has to be a physical shoulder. What's really extraordinary about these data is they drop one of each. They hedge their bets. They keep a shoulder to cry on. They keep a family member, because a family member is 
going to be the one person who's going to defend you uh, uh, forever, uh, at no, without question, as it were. So they, they hedge their bets. Really extraordinary. Um, <clears throat> so how do we make build these relationships? One of the things we ask is again in this longitudinal study of six formers going away to university. We asked them to say uh, how much, how often uh, they had um, had conversations with. Uh, um, either by phone or face-to-face -face with their original set of friends, and how often they'd done a whole list of activities with them, going shopping, going to parties, going on holiday, helping move house, all that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> and we're looking at the difference in emotional closeness, so the change in emotional closeness over, I think it's the first nine months of the study, so at the start of the study when they move away. And it's just to their friends, so here's zero, no change. And here's what happens if you look at these data in terms of the change in contact frequency, whether they were doing less contact face-to-face -face and phone contact conversation, if you like, now uh, than they were at the beginning of the study or more. Uh, and it's split for the two sexes. And I draw your attention to this extraordinary uplift here. Doing more face-to-face -face conversation by phone or what have you is what holds friendships up for girls. If they're, if they're not uh, doing that, the friendship will drift away very quickly. But I also draw your attention to the effect of conversation on boys' relationships. Absolutely zero. Right. Whereas, if you look at activities, you get pretty much the opposite result. Called doing stuff together affects girls' relationships, so it barely brings them up to zero. But look at the effect on boys' relationships. What keeps boys' relationships going is doing stuff together, banging heads together, whatever that is, playing five-a-side, going to the pub, climbing mountains, whatever. So my, my pitch on this is that this confirms very nicely two urban myths, which nobody be believes, but which are clearly absolutely true. One is that girls spend an hour on the phone to each other every day. And the other is that the average length of phone call for boys is 7.2 seconds. And why is it only 7.2 seconds? Well, what have you got to say other than, I'll see you down the pub at seven o'clock, right? So <laughs> the interesting question, of course, emerges that, that, or implication of these data is that the two sexes are actually living in very different social worlds. The girl's social world is really maintained and serviced by conversation principally, and guys by banging heads together. So the question I leave you with to ponder for the rest of the lecture is how on earth do the two sexes remain together as long as they do, or maybe don't, <laughs> uh, when their social dynamics are extremely different? All right. Um, <clears throat> the, the, the back to, to, to social grooming, which underpins primate sociality. If you, just to show you again how, how crucial this is and how time can, uh, costly this is, if you plot the average amount of social time, amount of time devoted to social interaction, which is principally grooming, against social group size in, in different primate species, so each one of these is, is a species, you get a generally linear relationship, which kind of tails off here at about 20%, as though this is really the upper limit of, uh, that you can afford to devote to, to this activity. So the rest of your time uh, it, it has to be taken up uh, with feeding and traveling to feeding sites and resting 
uh, and so on. Um, <clears throat> so this looks like an upper limit on the amount of time you can devote to social uh, time. And then according to how big a group you want to live in, so you uh, kind of allocate um, some proportion of, of that available time uh, to grooming. But it's, you know, it's a hugely substantial amount of time. These species up here are spending very nearly a fifth of their day in social interaction. Right? That is a massive amount of time. <clears throat> the reason it works turns out to be essentially that it's driven by, or it drives the endorphin system. The um, uh, afferent C tactile neural system, which connects essentially the hairy skin to the endorphin centers in the brain. And it, it's a relatively recent discovery, in fact, only came to light in the last 15 years or thereabouts. Turns out to be perfectly, well, what it's designed to do is to respond to one thing and one thing only, and that's light, slow stroking of exactly the kind you get when they're grooming, which they're moving the fur apart like this to look uh, uh, in between the skin and, and the, the, the base of the fur. So that light, stro slow stroking tr triggers this particular neural system, and it's quite unique. It, it, it's, it's unlike any of the other peripheral neural systems because it's unmyelinated, therefore it's very, very slow, um, and it has no return loop. So there's no feedback loop coming back uh, for, to, to, to activate the motor system in, in the muscles. And then it responds only to this one low frequency. But if you look at uh, grooming uh, uh, animals, and this has been known for some time on the basis of the whole series of experiments, um, uh, what this uh, stroking essentially does is trigger the endorphin system. Endorphins being opiates, you feel kind of lightheaded and, and contented and happy with whoever you're doing it with, and it's very specific to whom you're doing it with. And these animals who then spend a lot of time grooming together will support each other uh, if one of them gets into a, a fight or a squabble. We've now done this. Uh, exactly, effectively exactly the same experiment in PET scanners. So we got a bunch, we did this in Finland because we couldn't find anybody in Britain that could do it. Oxford didn't have a cyclotron to do the, because you're injecting um, radioactive dyes into the, the people in the scanner uh, to block up the receptor sites. Uh, and Oxford didn't have the machinery to actually produce the radioactive dyes we would have had to courier them up from London, which at, when there's no traffic is a minimum of an hour. When there's traffic, it's two hours. And these things have a half-life of two hours. Right. So we gave up at that point. And then uh, one of my collaborators in Finland said, oh, we've got a PET scanner. <laughs> we'll do it. <laughs> and they did it for half the price that we pay for a standard MRI here. Uh, incredible. Anyway, we did, <laughs> had lots of fun. They put lots of fins in um, all blokes because we thought if we could show it in blokes, it must be true because blokes are not very social. Right? <clears throat> so we had blokes in the scanner and their partners just stroking them on the torso. And these are fins, so this is nothing terribly exciting. It's all very calm and laid back. Uh, here are the, the brains going crazy with, uh, with uh, in the endorphin receptor sites going crazy all over the brain in response to stroking. 
What's more, uh, if you looked at the density of receptor sites in particular areas of the brain here in the ventral striatum, uh, there's a nice correlation with social network sites. We got all of them to because they had to be all there all day because they they're getting a double dose uh, of radioactive uh, ligands. Um, they have to do a baseline first thing in the morning, and they have to hang around all day till about four in the afternoon to get the second dose. So we give them all sorts of silly things to do, like fill out their complete social network size. And here, get this nice relationship between the size of your social circle and um, the density of endorphin receptor sites in key areas of the brain, and um, even your attachment style uh, correlates with the density of endorphin receptors, particularly in the orbital frontal cortex, interestingly enough. So here, the way to read this is this is the density of receptor sites, and this is your relationship style, if you like. So people down here are kind of Italianate and warm and throw their arms about you and uh, give you kisses and hugs all the time. And people up at this end are good, solid British and don't touch me. <laughs> uh, and as you can see, there's uh, a, a nice relationship there. It's all to do with endorphins, it turns out. So if we go back to the, 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 the issue for, for us, if we were trying to bond our groups of 150 the same way that primates do, i.e. just using grooming, how much grooming should we do? So here's those original grooming data again. We can plug us in with our group of 150 up to uh, the, the, the core uh, central relationship here and read across and it says we have to spend about 45% of our total daytime <coughs> hugging and cuddling basically because that's effectively what grooming has, has become for us. Um, which Clearly, the only people who have that amount of time on their hands are academics, but the rest of the world actually has to go out and earn a living. Um, it's not possible. Um, and here's that 20%. So it's, it's you're way off beam somewhere. Somehow, uh, we've used this time uh, or used our social time more effectively in order to bring this required grooming level down to here. The question is, how have we done it? And here, uh, is actually the amount of time on average that we do devote to social interaction. This is, these are time budget, seven time budget studies from all over the world. They range from a, a diary study of housewives in Dundee to uh, uh, Maasai herdsmen in East Africa and horticulturalists in New Guinea. And the average, a lot of variation around that. Remember, these are averages for species, but the average is about 20%. So it looks like we use the same amount of time limiting time that primates use, but somehow use that more efficiently. And the way we think we've done this is to capitalize on three other activities which turn out to be very good triggers of the endorphin system. Laughter. Laughter, we think, kicked in very early because it's very primitive. When somebody else laughs, you can't help laughing. You don't know what the joke is, but you laugh anyway, right? It's very contagious in that sense. And we share it with chimpanzees and, and the other great apes, but particularly chimpanzees. It's actually derived from the play invitation vocalization of, of monkeys and apes. Uh, it's just been slightly adapted to make it more stressful on, on the body. And of course, it's stresses on the body that trigger the, the endorphin system. Then we think singing and dancing, singing without words, 
uh, and dancing kicked in. And then finally, when language arrived, uh, it allowed us to have the rituals of religion and things like storytelling around the campfire. And all three of these are incredibly good at triggering the endorphin system. And through that, triggering senses of belonging to a community. So what we've done is here's, this is actually a plot of the predicted grooming requirements for all our fossil ancestors, all fossil populations, uh, on the basis of their cranial volumes and, and extrapolating through uh, the various equations from that to brain size to group size to grooming time. Um, these are the Australopithecines. They're sitting nicely on the 20% uh, limit. That's true for all primates. They're just basically glorified two two bipedal great apes. And then once Homo appears as a genus two million years ago, it starts to kick off going up to us up here. Um, and that these have sort of kicked in successively at, to try and break through a series of glass ceilings on, on social group size to eventually bring us up to 150. But I'll just show you um, some of uh, uh, our, our results just to, to uh, persuade you that um, endorphins really are involved. Um, the one we've done probably most on over the years is laughter. We're using a pain threshold, change in pain threshold as a proxy for endorphin uh, production in the brain, endorphins being part of the pain control system. So if you do something, your pain, and it triggers the endorphin system uh, uh, at all, then your pain thresholds should rise after that activity. And we're using mostly video uh, people, in this case, people watching video. So we're getting them, showing them 15 or 20 minutes of stand-up comedy, somebody like Michael McIntyre, and then we want to do a comparison test against something that does not make people laugh. And the best thing not to make people laugh for 15 minutes is golfing instruction videos. Sorry, I'm in the wrong place to say that, Scotland, aren't I? Um, <laughs> um, but it, it, uh, what's really interesting about both of these, actually, is you will only laugh in groups. Right, you can watch the same Michael McIntyre uh, video and absolutely fall about laughing if you're watching it with three or four other people. And, and you can be completely stony-faced and just smile wanly uh, if you watch it on your own. So you have to do it in groups. So this is a, just a compilation of five studies here uh, that we've done uh, um, over the years. Here's no change in pain threshold. There's a negative change in pain threshold here, so you can't stand it as much and a positive change, it's gone up. Uh, endorphins are highly active there. Here, these are all the people watching comedy. These are all people watching the controls. You see, they're all down here. They're all up there. These two here, I particularly like, because most all of these really are done on uh, watching videos, except for this one, which is done live at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So they were watching live stand-up comedy. These were watching little plays. Um, there they are. So there's the endorphin system. We've now put people in the scanner. This paper's just about to come out in Finland, doing exactly the same task, uh, except in Finnish, probably. Um, actually, no, all the Finns can speak perfect English, so it probably was all in English. And here's the brain, again, going uh, crazy. Uh, not a, interestingly, not as crazy as if you're being stroked, but still it's, it's responding very strongly and significantly to laughter. This is, so these are contrasts between watching uh, laughter videos and watching um, boring videos. Uh, you might wonder if, if really it's part of the issue is putting the body under stress and exercise is known to be a good trigger of the endorphin system, or why don't you just go down the gym 
every morning and pump iron, yeah, you would come back feeling better, indeed you do. But one of the interesting things is, it turns out, that if you do these activities in synchrony, it really ramps up the endorphin production uh, like crazy. I'll just illustrate this really with, with, with the dancing stuff. So this was, this was actually done in Brazil on, on high school kids there. They were doing various uh, uh, musical or the same set of dance, simple dance moves, either high exertion, standing up and throwing themselves about or sitting down and just doing the arm movements. And they're either doing it in synchrony or out of synchrony. Same music, but doing each of them was in a group would be doing this, the moves in a different order and they're being told through earphones which moves to, to switch to. And again, it's change in pain threshold. Here's no change. Uh, you don't get much uh, change out of low exertion, out of synchrony um, behavior, but when you're doing it in synchrony uh, or you're doing a high exertion version out of synchrony, you get some uplift just from the exercise as much as anything. But if you do high exertion in synchrony, uh, say you're really dancing, boy, it just takes you through the roof. And if you then ask them to rate their feelings of emotional closeness to the people they're actually doing this with, you see, oops, sorry, going the wrong way. Um, you get uh, e exactly parallel results. You get a much bigger uplift from doing these activities in synchrony with these people. And what's really interesting about this is that it's very specific to the people you do it with. If you are, when we ask them to rate their emotional closeness after the uh, task to, the, to their friends who weren't present, there was no change at all. Um, this is very specific to who you do it with. Here, just to um, uh, get you all out, singing is, is one of our singing studies where we've been looking at much the same thing. Again, this is, uh, uh, well, this is just mean changing closeness, actually. This is, these were special classes put on for us by the Workers' Education Association of four novice singing classes uh, as, as the um, uh, experimental groups and then three hobby classes uh, for novices um, for the control groups. And you can see this massive uplift you get after the very first session. So this is actually over a whole year's uh, courses, uh, seven months, I think. So this is the very first um, session. Suddenly, people are coming in as complete strangers. None of them knew each other. And suddenly, at the end of an hour's class, they're their best friends and they're telling each other their life stories. Extraordinary effect, and that really lasts right the way through. There's some improvement in uh, hobby classes as people get to know each other, but it's never as good as singing. Singing is just absolutely instantaneous, hence our name for it is the icebreaker effect. And then there are two other circumstances that uh, turn out to be very important. One is uh, alcohol. Alcohol turns out to be an extremely good trigger of the endorphin system. When you go, as you will know, to your alcohol detox clinic for detoxification, what they give you is naltrexone now. Naltrexone is an endorphin blocker, so you don't get the, the benefits of the endorphin here. Um, <clears throat> but also eating turns out to be, uh, 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 have some, some of these properties as well and, and to be involved in the endorphin system. But the, the, the last pitch in the can really, I think, is, is this stuff, sitting around the campfire telling stories. And we've approached this by um, doing it with, this is my collaboration with, with uh, humanities people mainly. What, what, what I 
kind of got interested in is, okay, if stories are part of that mechanism for creating communities, for bonding a community or a group of people together, I can understand why it works if, if it, the stories are about comedies. Why, we, why should we keep going to see comedy films and comedy plays? Because they make us laugh, laughter triggers the endorphin system, and we come out feeling uh, on top of the world. But why do we keep going back to watch tragedies? Just seems bizarre, unless tragedies are triggering the endorphin system too. Now the question then becomes, well maybe uh, this might work because the places in the brain we feel in psychological pain turn out to be exactly the same places where we feel physical pain. So there's a, a prima facie connection there that would actually allow it to work. So what we did was we had a bunch of people watch this film. I don't know if you've ever seen it or read the book, Stuart, A Life Backwards. It's actually a true story um, of a down and out in Cambridge befriended by a young academic. And they start writing together, this is Stuart, um, you know who they are, Tom Hardy and young Cumberbatch here. Um, uh, they start writing together uh, the, the, the life story of Stuart, uh, uh, trying to explain how it is that a you know, little kid from uh, a, a modestly normal family ends up on the streets, uh, in and out of prison, a drug addict, a convicted uh, criminal and all sorts of stuff. And eventually, and you can see this starting to build up towards it, eventually committing suicide because he can't take it any longer. That's the end of the, the, the film, as it were, where the film closes. But it's deeply, deeply emotionally wrenching. Um, and most people found it really quite uh, hard to watch. This is a made-for-TV film, right? So it's, it's not, I think in, in Norway, it was listed as uh, 12 and over. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know what the Norwegians show, show their kids. Here, at least, it was 18 and over. Um, but it is very, very heart-wrenching. Um, and we did the usual thing. We had a very large samples of people watching this film uh, in groups of various size in a little theater. Um, and then we had a bunch of people watching some very boring BBC documentaries. And they all did uh, what's sometimes known as the Roman chair or the wall sit task as a test of uh, uh, pain threshold. It, this is a standard skiing exercise. Um, it's very, very comfortable when you first take it up. Most people can only stand it for about a minute. They, but the point is it's uh, it, it really easy to measure because you can ask somebody to hold it until they collapse. And they just end up having to collapse on the floor. But you recover from it uh, fairly quickly. But it is extremely painful uh, at the end. And as I say, most people can only manage um, about a minute. Um, so we had these two lots. Here, here are the data. These are the... Uh, uh, changes in, in the means when various other factors are held into account for the experimental group and the control group going in completely opposite directions. Um, uh, so these people watching boring stuff, um, these people watching Stuart, and now here's the direct consequence of that in terms of their sense of bondedness to what was a group of strangers that they were walking, watching the movie to. No change at all in the control group. And there's a whacking great increase in the experimental group. Suddenly they felt very warmed and, and, and positive towards um, these other people. So, thank you very much.
Well, thank you very much to uh, Professor Dunbar for what I'm sure you found to be a, uh, a very informative and also entertaining talk. So um, if you can stay, uh, we can uh, take a few questions. And uh, if you're watching this uh, online, you can go to Twitter and hashtag 150 friends. I think that's right. Um, so questions. And please feel free to ask absolutely anything. Well, perhaps I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll start. Um, so the, the study on brain size and social groups, um, you brought up apes. But what about studies in, in groups outside of those? So I can think of you know multiple species. I, I, I you know obviously ants I think and things like that would be sort of a, a different dynamic yep. holding them together. But yep. Yep. In mammals and birds in general, outside primates, with a very few exceptions within the mammals, uh, the social brain effect. Uh, is represented as a difference between pair-bonded monogamous species and species living in promiscuous, more promiscuous mating systems. Um, and what seems to be the common theme here is the cognitive costs of maintaining bonded relationships, because I should just explain that all primate social systems are based around these bonded deeply bonded relationships, which is what this grooming effect produces. And what primates seem to have done is essentially taken the same cognition that allows species of birds and mammals that live in pair bonds to coordinate and maintain those relationships through time and use that same cognition to extend it to non-reproductive relationships, i.e. to friends. Uh, and the, the key measure of that, I think, is that in birds, the species with the largest relative brain size are the um, uh, lifelong pair bonders. So the birds of prey, albatrosses, crows, those sort of the, the species that are annual pair bonders have bigger brains than promiscuous species, but they're not as big as lifelong pair bonders because they only have to maintain that relationship through one breeding season, then they can start again with a new one next year. The exceptions in the primates are also species which have primate-like bonded social systems. So they're the horse family, zebras, donkeys, horses, etc. Uh, the whales, um, and of all species, the camelids, the camel family. <laughs> That's mainly probably driven by the South American camelids, the vicuña and so on, which are, are, have very big groups of you know, permanently uh, living together individuals. Do you have any idea what a whale or a dolphin might do instead of grooming each other? Just, well, it, it's not the whales gen generically. It's specifically the, the, the dolphins, the tooth whales, that show this effect. Uh, and it's, it, it's, that's interesting. I mean, they do lots of rubbing mm -hmm. along each other mm -hmm. as they, they go along. So, I mean, how they, how they produce these bonded effects is an interesting question. What's interesting is that the species like horses, the horse family, that have these bonding groups, do an awful lot of nuzzling and grooming of each other, particularly on the, on the withers. Um, and this is also true of birds. The birds that live in very tight pair bonding do an awful lot of uh, social preening 
Um, so it looks like, no one's ever looked, but it looks like that's probably the underpinning mechanism in their case too. So I'm sure that's given you some time to think of some questions. Um, that's part of the reason you get that variability in the relationship uh, between um, mentalizing ability and uh, the size of your social circle is partly due to personality. Uh, um, not entirely, there are other effects that come in. And, and the, the big effect there is really the difference between introverts and extroverts. So extroverts tend to have bigger social circles than introverts. What they all have is similar sized inner circles. Extroverts have more people in their outer 150 circles. So they'll be up around 200, maybe 250. Whereas introverts will, will be around about 100 or, or so. But they'll all have the same 50, 15, and five sizes. What is interesting is if you then look at the relative emotional closeness to each of their relationships, is extroverts have much less close, emotionally close relationships than introverts. So it looks pretty much as though you have the same amount of social capital to devote to other people, and you can choose to spread it thinly among lots of people and be a social butterfly, an extrovert, or spread it thickly among a few people. And that's obviously what introverts do. Any others? Uh, we, we, uh, the question is whether we've, we've looked at autistic people in this context. And autistic people, um, uh, 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 clinically anyway, um, uh, defined by those who can't pass one of the criteria, can't pass theory of mind as a task. So they do not handle social relationships very well. Right? Um, um, they really don't understand social relationships. They can very often use rules of thumb for getting by, but their social skills are, are, are very poor. And we, we've often thought about, I mean, what you would then expect is that their social layers would be very small and maybe confined to the inner uh, circles only. Uh, and they would not have the outer layers of maybe even the 50 and 150 layers. Um, but we've never actually looked at that. Um, at the, the effort of doing so is all that stopped us doing that because you've then got to go, because it's a clinical population you're dealing with, the ethics becomes uh, a more enormous challenge and, and, and we just tend to leave those things aside and hope somebody else will do it. What we have done though is these kind of tasks with children. So we've, the way we've done that is look at the size of the interacting groups in, in playgrounds at schools and nurseries over the age range five up to about 15, I think we did. And then we would hoik them out of, so we look at the, the, how many individuals they're simultaneously keeping playing with in, in, in playtime, and then hoik them out into a classroom and given them some um, uh, adapted for children um, uh, mentalizing tasks to measure their levels. And you get this nice correlation between their mentalizing skills at different ages and the size of their social, the number of people they can uh, operate with simultaneously, as it were. And what we think happens is everybody starts with this inner layer of one and a half. Not quite sure what that tells you about 
marital relationships. There ought to be two. <laughs> Maybe that reflects the natural divorce rate. Um, uh, and that what seems to happen is as you develop these mentalizing skills through time, starting at uh, far age five with acquiring the second order intentionality, so you, you ex basically add these layers in progressively. So by the time actually you, you reach adult level performance, which is really mid-teens, you're operating at that point really only with, with a 50, um, very characteristically with a 50 layer circle. You don't have a 150 layer fall. You seem to acquire the 150 layer only round about the mid 20s, which is the point at which the frontal lobes finally stabilize. There seems to be some correlation there. So, so you, as you sort of become more skilled cognitively and can handle more complex interactions, you can add on these layers, get to about the mid 20s, it stabilizes then until you get to well, I always like to think it's next year for me, um, <laughs> uh, at which point you gradually <laughs> come back in and eventually end up with one and a half. <laughs> Hopefully a while yet, <laughs> but probably uh, it'll come in the end if you live long enough. So, and my guess is what happens on that developmental trajectory because autistic individuals don't really get beyond uh, the the, the um, uh, uh, mentalizing skills of even five-year-olds that they end up getting stuck in this very small component. Now, this doesn't stop them knowing a lot of people, and this goes back to the, the issue, I suppose, on Facebook, where you can, uh, people, many people, not large numbers, but many people obviously have five or 600 or 1,000 uh, friends on Facebook, and all they're doing is doing what we do in everyday life, which is adding in the layer of acquaintances. We would recognize those as acquaintances in everyday life. I don't know these people terribly well, but I did meet them at a party once. Uh, and maybe I put their phone number in my phone. And, and whereas Facebook just calls them all friends and doesn't, dif doesn't differentiate. Um, and I think that what's probably likely to happen, this is just a guess with, with autistic people, is they've got the inner layers, maybe as far as 15, and then after that, they're just acquaintances. So it's kind of a contraction, if you like, of the outer two layers that just don't exist. Because our, our problem is this part of the cognitive demands. So we've got two different cognitive demands going on simultaneously, I think. One is the intense cognitive demand of trying to maintain a, a large number of very close relationships, not just romantic partners, but these 15 family and friends that make up the two inner layers. And that's extremely costly to you. But then we've got this secondary cognitive demand, which is trying to maintain these outer layer relationships at a reasonable level so that they're functional for us, but without having to invest too heavily in them. And so just being able to keep those ticking over is not, you know, necessarily the easiest thing in the world, and I suspect that just goes by the board with autistic. Yes, guy. So, so following on from that point, not being a, a Facebook user myself, do you? And, and I guess this study could be done if you haven't already done it. Is, is this effect additive? That if you don't have Facebook, you have 150 sort of close friends that you physically meet, or have friends that you physically meet, whereas if you are a Facebook user, you have fewer physical friends that you meet on a regular basis, but actually more in the cyberspace, as it were. 
No, it seems that almost all your Facebook friends are your everyday friends, uh, is what happens. You have a few extra that are casual, but most of those tend to be in the outer peripheries, right? They, I, I would refer to them as voyeurs to your social life. You know? um, most of the people that you, you're exchanging most of your traffic with and that you're thinking about who you're sending postings to or expecting people to read are people you would consider friends in the face-to-face, -face, everyday world. Um, it's just that Facebook is a convenient medium <laughs> of a kind for certain kinds of traffic, apparently mostly when you're incredibly bored. Um, <laughs> um, and it doesn't, and it, it actually substitutes quite well for keeping relationships ticking over. I think that's where Facebook's great success has been, is what it allows you to do is to keep friendships going in a context where normally they would start to die very quickly because you can't actually see these people very often. Right? So what it's doing is slowing up the rate of decay uh, by allowing you to keep sort of interacting, e even if you know, sort of at a distance. But my sense is, and this is purely a, a kind of intuition, is that in the end, face-to-face -face interactions are so important that it's really about seeing the whites of the eyes. This is why Skype kind of works as well as it does, I think. You've got to see the whites of the eyes from time to time. And not only that, but physical contact and the endorphin system thus done is actually much more important to us in our relationships than we actually realize. We spend an awful lot of time touching people and stroking them and patting them and things like that. In casual conversations, I don't mean romantic relationships, I mean ca just casual conversations, the way, way you sort of touch somebody on the shoulder or what have you. And I'm sometimes prompted to observe that really in the end, a touch is worth a thousand words in terms of your understanding of how somebody feels about you. The way they touch you tells you much, much more than anything they could ever say, almost. So those kind of things I don't think, well, they, at the, they certainly can't be replicated in, in the virtual world yet. The techies, I, I, I'm, I'm modestly upbeat and cyber optim, op, 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 optimist on this, and that I think the techies are very good at solving problems once they realize what the problem is, and they may well find a solution. But at least at the moment, there are no good <clears throat> touchy-feely components to it. And, you know, it's just too clunky because it's, you know, you've got this long separation between your post and, and the reply that comes back, which makes things like jokes not work. You know, they come in too, the reply comes back too late. <laughs> Famously on, on email, jokes never work as well as they would do in the pub when you'd fall off the chair laughing at somebody's insane joke. But on email, you kind of go, what are you on today? <laughs> um, so I think at the end of the day, my sense is Things like Facebook keep, are good for keeping relationships sticking over in a context where they would normally die. That nothing on earth is going to stop that relationship dying eventually uh, if you don't actually get to grips with each other at some point now and again. We'll go for one more question and say. Hi. Uh, did you think that? Um, friendships in the Facebook can be deeper than the normal life as as we choose our friends in the Facebook um, depending on the, uh, the people who have the similar thoughts. 
So, and it's, uh, we can say it's more likely to find the soulmate yep. in the Facebook more yep. than real life. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the answer is, it might seem that that's the case, and it certainly is the case that you get this siloing effect uh, on the digital world that they've been complaining about uh, over all the recent elections and so on, that people only talk to people who think the same way as they do, so you've lost this capacity to engage in a discussion about political things. But in reality, I don't think it probably does, because you're just as selective in real life. And it turns out that, uh, from the work we've done, is there are seven pillars of friendship. It's a title stolen from T. Lawrence's famous seven pillars of wisdom about his experiences in the Arabian Desert in the First World War. Um, and these seven dimensions of friendship are all basically cultural, right? And the more you share of them with somebody, the more emotionally close you feel to, the, to them, the more likely they are to be in your center circle. So the number of these dimensions you share determines where this person, a person lies in, in, in your various layers, and also how willing you are to be altruistic to them. And those seven dimensions are having the same language, or particularly dialect, same dialect, uh, coming from the same place of origin, the village you grew up in, not so much where you're born, but where you grew up, I think, is the key. Um, <clears throat> having the same educational experience, same kind of educational trajectory, and all of those, at least the first and third of those, are probably crucial for being able to have an interesting conversation with each other, right? Um, having the same hobbies and interests, uh, having the same worldview, by which we mean the same political views, religious views, and moral views, uh, having the same uh, <clears throat> musical tastes, and having the same sense of humor. And all those appear to be, we did a lovely experiment on this uh, with people. We gave them a whole series of best jokes ever to rate for funniness. So that gives us a, a, a kind of um, supermarket uh, barcode of their sense of humor, if you like. And then a week later, we sent them an email and say, here's uh, somebody's um, uh, with a, these are the, the jokes they liked out of this set of jokes. Um, you know, is it the sort of person you'd like to form a friendship with? Would you lend them 50 uh, pounds if, if, if they asked you these kind of questions? What we didn't tell them was the uh, set of uh, uh, um, uh, preferences was based entirely on their, their, their own answers, their own profile, adjusted to be either 80%, uh, 60%, 40%, or 20% the same as theirs. And the more similar that person was, the more willing they went, oh, yes, that would make a good friend, or yes, I'd lend them $50. So something about sharing these things in common that makes you think this person would be really interesting. And I think what happens is you meet people you, spend, you bring them into the center circle and therefore devote a lot of time to them to find out more about them. And then according to how many of these boxes get ticked, you start to see them more or less. And if you start to see them less, they will drift down and end up in the layer 
that's appropriate for the number of things. Now, what's interesting about all these seven dimensions is A, they're, they're predominantly cultural, so they change. So they change through life, according to who you, you meet, your you know, preferred uh, musical tastes or what have you change. And what that seems to reflect is an attempt to manage free riders on the system. We've known about this with dialects for a long time. The reason languages are so changed so rapidly is to allow you to identify very small-scale communities. And what your dialect gives you is a very, very small-scale local community. Right? And so all of these seven sets of markers are identity markers for members of the same community. They, if, they, if they have the same beliefs as you, they speak the same dialect, they like the same jokes, they have the same taste in music, they like tiddlywings or whatever, uh, the likelihood is they grew up in the same community. Even if you've never met them before, they grew up in the same community. That means you know how they think, you don't have to explain things in great detail, you can just give two words and they'll know what you mean, and most important of all, you know you can trust them. Right? And that's what, what those friendship markers are actually looking for or designed to look for, to create, recreate this sense of this very, very small-scale community. So I think that's happening anyway. It's just that online you can be a bit more choosy, uh, more quickly. When somebody offends you, you can pull the plug on them and defriend them or unfriend them, whatever it is. Whereas in real life, uh, you're stuck in the sand pit, right? Uh, if somebody kicks sand in your face, you can't pull the plug. <laughs> You have to sit there and just find some solution to getting on with them because you're stuck in the same sandpit of them. And that's the big worry, really, I think, personally, just to sort of end on a happy note or otherwise, with so much time being spent online because it, it, you are in this situation where you can just stop talking to people you, 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 you don't like the views of rather than being forced to learn how to compromise and discuss. And the reason we have this big brain to manage this social world is it actually takes a long time. This is why we don't think you acquire your 450 till you get to about the mid-20s in life, because it takes in the order of 20 to 25 years to learn the social skills needed to manage this complex world. So in other words, there's no point in having a big computer if you don't put the software in. The way we put the software in is through develop, the developmental process of learning how to get, you know, sort of get on and, and understand what, when somebody does this, what that really means and how to kind of negotiate compromises with them so the society can then work. So it is a very long, drawn-out process. The worry would be, I think, and many people have expressed it, is that if kids grow up with too much online experience and not enough experience in the real world, they're not learning the social skills that they need to actually manage this very complicated social world that we live in. Well, I think that's a, a lovely <laughs> place to, to, to wrap up. So I'd just like to, to thank you all again, especially for staying the extra time, and also thank Professor Dunbar again for a great talk. Yeah. Yeah.